You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Well, I think we're uh, we're all about ready to start here, anxious to start the event. Uh, buenas noches. I hope this finds you all safe and well. Uh, my name is Josiah Luis Alderete, and I'd like to very warmly welcome you all to uh, City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of City Lights bookstores in-store calendar during this crazy pandemic shelter in place that we're all experiencing. Um, though, unfortunately, we're unable to hold events at the store like we've, you know, it's been such a tradition of having these events at the store. It's, it's been real difficult ha not having them. But through this series, uh, we're continuing to celebrate the works of authors that we know and love and admire with online readings, discussions and forums throughout the month of August and into the fall. Uh, we're very happy over here at City Lights to uh, finally give out the good news that we've reopened our doors to the public. Following SF Health Department guidelines, we aim to make this reopening as safe as possible for everyone. So, por favorcito, please come by and visit us. I don't mean this lightly, we missed you all. <laughs> we really did. The bookstore missed you all. The books missed you all. So come on back. Uh, you'll be able to once again browse our stacks. Our business hours are seven days a week from noon to 8 p.m. Like I said, we're real excited about reopening. So I um, hope to see you all soon. Um, and as many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. Um, throughout this whole pandemic, we've continued to publish books in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Pocket Poet series. Uh, recently, we are really proud to have Sophie Adali's new book, as well as Nigerian poet uh, Uki Niduka's new book. Uh, we put out Hillary Moore and James Tracy's No Fascist USA, The Green New Deal and Beyond as well. And man, my, my personal favorite from last year, the one and only Bob Kaufman. So uh, learn more about the books that we're publishing. Please check them out on our website at www.citylights.com. You can also keep up with City Lights at social media, at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, for those of you who have friends out there that have missed today's broadcast, it's going to be rebroadcast on YouTube at a later time. So if you know anyone that misses it, just let them know. And tonight, tonight we are thrilled beyond words to be hosting Joshua Bennett in conversation with Tongo Eisen Martin, Jesse McCarthy, and all the way from the East Coast, Simone White will be exploring Joshua Bennett's new book, being Property Once Myself, Blackness and the End of Man, published by Belknap Press, Harvard University Press. Um, during this reading, I'd like you all to know that copies of this book will be available for sale tonight via the link we're going to be posting in the chat section of your screen. And por favorcito, please do purchase a copy if you can. It's a great way of supporting City Lights and its mission of bringing you and continuing to bring you awesome books. So I swear I'm almost done talking. I just have to give you a special words about our speakers tonight. Um, the, uh, the main man of the evening tonight launching is his, his book Zoom Tour. We're really excited to have Joshua Bennett tonight, um, the author of uh, The Sobbing School as well. He's the winner of the National Poetry Series and a finalist for the NAACP Image Award. Joshua has received grants and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ford Foundation, and MIT 
and he was a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. He's the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College, and he's going to be joined tonight by Tongo Eisen Martin, beloved Bay Area son. Tongo is the author of Heaven is All Goodbye. It's published by City Lights Books in 2017, and also of Someone's Dead Already, Bootstrap Press 2015. Tongo's poetry has appeared in Harper's Magazine, New York Times Magazine, and Heaven is All Goodbyes was shortlisted for the Griffin International Poetry Prize and was awarded the California Book Award for Poetry, an American Book Award, and a Penn Oakland Book Award. Tongo is also a movement worker and educator whose work in Rikers Island was featured in the New York Times. He's been a faculty member at the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University and his curriculum on extrajudicial killing of black people, we charge genocide again, has been used as an educational and organizing tool throughout this country. He is from San Francisco. Also joining Joshua Bennett is gonna be Jesse McCarthy, who is an assistant professor jointly appointed in the Department of English and the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His research is concerned with the intersection between politics and aesthetics in African-American literature, post-war or post-45 or post literary history and black studies. While attending Princeton University, he founded a digital humanities project based on the Sylvia Beach archives held at Princeton's Firestone Library called Mapping Expatriate Paris. Wow. His writing on culture, politics, and literature has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, The Nation, Dissent, The New Republic, and M Plus One. He also serves as an editor at The Point. Also joining us tonight will be Simone White, who's the author of Dear Angel of Death, of Being Dispersed, and House Envy of All the World, and of the poetry chapbooks on rest and with Kim Thomas Dolly. Simone's writing has appeared in publications including Art Forum, Bomb, Eflux Journal, the Chicago Review, and the New York Times Book Review. She teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, and we're really grateful for her taking out time for a busy schedule to join us. You all, I just needed to give you an example of these amazing authors welcoming and joining us tonight. So please, y'all, give them a warm hand, do that clap hand thing, and welcome everyone to City Lights Live. So without further ado, I'm gonna give it over to these uh, people and let you be wowed by this amazing event. Welcome y'all, welcome Joshua. Thank you, Josiah, it was a beautiful introduction. And thank you everyone that's joining us today, including uh, our illustrious readers, yeah, Tango, Jesse, and Simone. Uh, if nothing else, I wanted the launch of the book, not even to just be about the object itself, but really just an occasion to celebrate all the beautiful work that's happening in the field of Black literary studies, um, Black poetry. Um, and I, I got that model from Yosef Surrett, uh, who's one of my mentors. He's currently at Columbia University. And I remember when his book, Spirit in the Dark, launched, what he had was a panel of just artists come together, read some of their favorite passages, and read just whatever work was on their heart. Um, and that really inspired me, living as we are in a moment marked, not just by uh, catastrophe, but but I think a reminder that we have to rely upon one another. So with that being said, I'm just going to read a, a brief passage um, that was taken from a recent interview I did with Roro Toko um, about the book. It's also about my family, uh, which is the condition of possibility for everything that I do. Um, they helped me believe that I could be a writer from the time I was very young. And so it wouldn't make any good sense for me to launch this book without them. Um, one more thing on that, my grandparents met 
in a strawberry field in Lillington, North Carolina. Um, and so the image on the front of this book is an homage to them and the love they imagined in the midst of great duress. Being Property Once Myself is a book about how we love each other. It is a book about the astonishing breath of the each other at the end of that last sentence, and thus the depth of our adoration. It asserts that our dead are always with us. In that sense and others, it is also a book for my grandmother, Charlotte, who passed at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic and her mother before her. The same woman who prayed for her grandchildren's children in a South Bronx tenement, speaking words over the life of a boy she would never meet in the flesh. I live and breathe in the wake of her words flung to heaven. When I sit down to write, I aspire toward the power of her conviction and her meditative tenacity. The professional path that led to this book was being raised by Black people that loved Black people and who taught me from a young age to believe that our stories were worth telling, our tradition worth studying, our people worth language lovely enough to approach, if only at a distance, the transcendent joy that is made possible when we are gathered together. I was trained as an undergraduate student in an Africana studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. As an 18 year old, I understood that program, now a department, as first and foremost, a haven for black students trying to make it through the institution with varying levels of success. This of course was a pivotal moment in my development as a writer and thinker. The habits of study we learned were inextricable from a commitment to taking care of the most vulnerable among us. We were taught the missions and methods of black studies so that we might better understand the truth of the modern world and how we might improve it, no matter our professional trajectories or individual dreams. My time as a graduate student at Princeton and at the Society of Fellows at Harvard after that only concretized my sense that the power of Black studies was in its capacity to enhance our social and political imaginations in this way. I learned who I was in the order of things, and my sense of what was possible only grew from there. Through the generous mentorship of Saidia Hartman, Gregory Pardlow, Imani Perry, Yosef Surrett, and others, I came to understand myself as someone who did not have to relinquish my sensibilities as a poet to become a literary scholar, but could instead embrace the language, the liveness of Black poetry to enhance my approach to the lifelong work of literary theory. My hope for this book is that it lives a long life and that it is ultimately considered a meaningful contribution to the growing constellation of texts examining both the history and present workings of Black critical theory concerned with non-human life worlds. I also hope, and I've said this elsewhere, that the book's engagement with the work of Black poets is a reminder that poetry plays an absolutely central role within both Black letters and Black social life. Here I'm thinking, of course, of Jupiter Hammond and Phyllis Wheatley as some of our earliest literary ancestors in terms of the written page. But I'm also thinking about the role, as Hortense Spiller so beautifully details in her stunning 1974 dissertation, Fabrics of History, Essays on the Black Sermon, of Black preaching as the first form of Black poetry in the U.S. context. The tone and texture of this book and all my writing really was influenced in the first instance by Black preachers. Given those conditions of emergence, I hope, whatever its merits are, that my book shines a light on the aesthetic brilliance of Black writing, Black performance, and Black poetics as they operate outside the borders of the U.S. American Academy. Finally, I hope that this book contributes to a renewed interest in the writings of every author whose work 
I've explored within its pages. The discovery of this particular thread in their work has changed my life in so many distinct ways. My intellectual, aesthetic, political, and spiritual sensibilities have never been the same. And so it is one of my dreams for the book that it likewise inspires others to think about the work of environmental reparation and the work of black freedom struggle as fundamentally intertwined. Our work, I believe, comes with a singular responsibility. It was Carter G. Woodson who once wrote that there would quote, be no lynching if it did not start in the schoolroom. Our collective project then is not only the repudiation of lies about the role of our people in history, but the forwarding of new images, new language, a more robust and truthful engagement with the indomitable beauty of the black expressive tradition and all that it has given us. With that, uh, I'd love to get the panel started. Thank you all for listening. Um, shout out to Yonkers, New York. I feel like I need to say that ending of everything I do for the rest of my life. So shout out to D-Block and to DMX and Jada in particular. Thank you. Think next up, Tonga, are you going to be first up? People are going to read in the list of introduction, yeah? Okay. Tongo? Yes. Fast cash smuggled through my infant torso. I arrived smiling. Quote, check cash and spot seal my eyes, hearing voices, but none of them sang to me. Hmm. I'm lucky to be a metaphor for no one. Washing my face with the memory of water, my back to the edge of the chessboard. I mean, I'm settling into a petty arrest record with my face laid flat on my apartment kitchen table. Mississippi linoleum begins. Citizen council, rest haven, government plants braiding together breathing tubes. A Greek philosopher takes the path of least resistance. The bronze corporation age dies. Cultural white nationalism in boardrooms, they ask if county line skin could be churned directly into cornflakes. A Senate special chain gang mines our neighborhood for evidence of continent unity, makes a mess of the word kin. Makes a war report out of a family secret core progression, a tenor part before dying, makes white people geniuses. Lynch mob freaks rehearse their show tunes in the courthouse walls they take for mirrors. Rehearse for a president's pat on the head, a pat on the head they take for audience laughter. Doesn't matter if you name a building, Du Bois a thousand times, a lot of surge in the soup, a lot of speed. Treaty ink stained teeth write themselves a grin. Imperial speech writer grins boil over in my ink riddled mind. A non-future dripping with real people. I mean real people, not poem people. A street with no servants somehow, a soul singer somehow in the West. Constellation eternity or the poor man's fish order. This half of a half of the spirit or husk of a messiah. Religious memorabilia made from the wood of a prison farm fence. System makes a psychic adjustment. For sibling domestic colonies and not-for-profit Tuesday meltdowns, we do straightforward time. Dehydration takes hold of the police state. Every 28 hours, the house dares to slay. What turns you into a sergeant mention? Turns you into a landslide of sirens. Layout sketches passed between deacons. Plot twists provided by white beggars in a black city. The fathers who Reagan flicked. Kicking garbage, thinking about race or production. Notebooks dangling out of car windows. We go the way of now extinct hand gestures. Mediterranean sandals and underground moves in tandem. I mean, whoever I am today is still your friend. Crooked cops and crooked news junkies. Amadou Diallo is your mind on military science. Mario Woods, the gang enhancement they even put on God. If you turn down the television low enough, you can hear San Francisco begging for more war profiteering. We will not live forever, but someone out here wants us to as mice. 
pouring through an hourglass in Olympus, Babylon, or Babylon, Olympus, a subway car smoke session making its way into an interrogation room. Maybe it's all just one room. It's definitely all just one smoker. Live from your monotheistic toy collection, poor people writing letters near books about Malcolm X, ice picking the art, new floorboards for Watts prophecy, pen twitching over scrap paper, pen tweaking, while smoothly a bus driver delivers incarcerated children, the Lord's door opens. All street life, all street life to a certain extent starts fear. Sometimes with a spiritual memory even. Pre-dawn soul clap, your father dying even. Maybe I'll push the city too far. My sensitivities to landfill districting and minstrel whistles, modal gangsterism, white supremacist graffiti on westbound rail guards all overcome and reauthored. Revolutionary violence that chose its own protagonists, a muted stage of genius, the garbage is growing voices. Condensed Marxism, warrior depressors, underpasses in pockets, we might be deities, a decent bid on the panther name of merciful Marxism. This quiet at home life, a metaphor for relaxing next to a person who is relaxing next to a gun. I stared at my father for a few seconds, then returned to my upbringing. Returned to the souls of Ohio black folks. Revolution damn near pagan at this point. You know what the clown wants? The respect <laughs> Wants to interpret pain only. Wants a pen cap full of bullets. Real advice from Malcolm. Wants your old soul to turn young. See ancestors in broad daylight. The Atlantic licking South Carolina like a penny plated gun named Underground Guy. Conversational drinking boy wants to pull a 38 out of a begging bowl. Wants me to hurt my hand on this pen. I'm not tired of these rooms. Just tired of the world that gives them a relativity. My only change of clothes prosecuted, the government has finally learned how to write poems. Shootouts that briefly align, that make up a parable. White bodies are paid well. The white men actually even have leaders. All white people are white men. All I do is practice for it. A rat pictures a river, can almost taste the racial divide, can almost roll a family member's head into a city hall legislative chamber, knows who in this good book will fly. I've decided not to talk out of anger ever again, Lord. Me and my wife at the same time, I met new audience members for our pain. We pass each other cigarettes and watch cops win. A city gone uniquely linear, Harlem of the West through a true universe. I'll always remember you in fancy clothes, my wife said. So here I sit, twisting in silk ideation. My rifle made of post-bellum tar targets made of an honest language. The San Francisco poetry is how God knows it is me whining, riding among the lesser respected wolves. That's the observed militarization, Dixieless prison bookkeeping. I mean, the California great coasts are coming. Miss mob gossip and bourgeois debt collection. I mean, it's tempting to change professions near poem. In the Chicago briefing, a white sergeant saying blank slate for all of us after this black organizer is dead. Standard academics toasting two buck wine at the tank parade. Bay of nothing, Lord. Nuclear cobblestones, gun line athleticism, and the last of the inherited asthma. Children giving white dogs to play with in fear. Facial expressions borrowed from rich people's shoestrings. I can hear hate and teach hate and call tools by people names and name people dead to themselves. No one getting naturalized except federal agents soon. Carving the equator in the throat soon. Sorry to make you relive all of this, Lord. Pre-dying monarchy friends putting up politician posters and snorting the remainder of the pace. Menstrual scripts shoveled into the walls by their elders. My children sharpening quarters on the city's edge. For these audiences, I project myself into a ghost-like state. For these gangsters, I do the same. Every now and then we take a nervous look. East sleep becomes Christ sleep, starts growing a racial identity. Do you have a spiral, Lord? Has the gang age betrayed us? Be patient with my poems, Lord. So much pain is a point to crime. I mean, it has to be if race traders come with it. Lord, is that my revolver in your hand? Better presidents than these of yonder cages have called us holy slaves. Fill the school libraries with cop documentaries. Baby, I don't have money for food. <laughs> I don't have a present moment at all. Thank 
It's fire. <laughs> well, in conclusion, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to just I just want to say um, that you know this is an amazing uh, amazing book uh, that 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 really. Um, uh, actually, from start to finish, kept me in a kind of a state of fury um, in that engaging I ideas in, in which, you know, I'm, I'm viscerally all of these things, I'm, I'm viscerally all of these people and all of these, uh, and all of these creatures. Um, and, and so it was a, um, it was a, it was a really, uh, it's a really energized engagement of ideas. And I, you know, I so appreciate what you did and, and, and really and what you continue to do. And uh, yeah, man, we're all proud of you. Man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Jesse, you're up. <laughs> well, look, man, I, that's, it's a hard act to follow. <laughs> so I go, man. Um, look, uh, I thought what I would what I would really try and do is um, just say a few things. I can't possibly sum up everything that's in this incredible book. Um, but for those who uh, who haven't had a chance to read it yet and um, are curious, I thought I'd just try and say a little bit about. Um, how it seems to how it seems to work and why I think it's so important and um, and I hope we'll talk about it because you know one of the things I, I, I really think um, that's that's very exciting is I think this is really cutting-edge work I mean I see this book um, very much also in conversation with someone like um, Zakia Jackson's book Becoming Human I think you guys are really at the kind of cutting edge of black studies today, where we see a lot of work that's been happening, let's say in the last maybe 10 years in black studies. Um, a lot of stuff that people have been talking about in terms of what's sometimes referred to as the theoretical turn in black studies, um, the ontological turn in black studies, but also these new emerging fields, animal studies, for example, um, which has been exploding in the last, say, really the last 10 years as well. And also, I think this book is also implicitly, actually, no, it's also explicitly, right, engaged in um, or at the intersection of eco-criticism, eco-poetics. So it's really tying all of these things together, where Black studies, animal studies, and rethinking the environment the ecology, being, all of these things at the same time together. Um, and there's really, I mean, I think we're, we're, I really think we're in an extraordinary moment in terms of thought. I think that, um, you know, obviously in a lot of ways, historically, we're in a moment of tremendous crisis. And I, I like to think, though, that out of this moment of crisis, uh, hopefully something new and something better is coming. Uh, but it can only come um, if we if we can learn to think differently, to think otherwise, and to 
reconceive of our relationships, our relationships with each other, our relationships to the natural world. This book, um, in a sense, takes uh, uh, this a kind of a notion that makes it very appropriate for us to be thinking about and in the presence of the poets, right? Because in a lot of ways, it's a book about metaphor. And you actually, in your introduction, um, as an epigraph, uh, quote, or you have a quote from Richard Wright from the Blueprint for Negro Writing. And it's a very famous quote, but I read it, uh, where Richard Wright says, the Negro is America's metaphor. It's a very powerful quote that, that I think has, you know, circulated in Black thought and in Black studies for a long time. But one of the things that I find so fascinating about this book is that I kind of see your book as a kind of response to that quote that kind of flips it, right? And says, well, I don't necessarily want to ask the question of, you know, the Negro being a metaphor for America. But what is the Negro's metaphor for their American experience, for their American condition, for their American sojourn, right, in this place? And one of the things that you do is you say, well, let me look to our literature. Let me look to our fiction. Let me look to our autobiographies. Let me look to the poetry. And one of the things you find there is that um, one of the richest sources of metaphor that Black folk kind of engage with um, centers on the animal. And initially, I think, you know, um, and folks that don't know you, <laughs> We can say this, we can say this, <laughs> Joshua and I go back to grad school, we know each other. And so I feel really privileged because I've kind of, I feel like I've kind of followed the evolution of this project and it's been so exciting to watch and now to actually see it as a book out in the world is so exciting. Um, but I remember thinking initially, you know, how does that work? How does that, how, do, how does that question come together? And, and so often I think it's been thought of in a very one-dimensional way. And, and the question is felt very fraught. In the, and what, just real quickly, what I mean by that is that I think mostly people have thought about the question of animals or animality and blackness as one of this fraught proximity, where people say, we were treated as animals, we were considered chattel, and so we don't even wanna think about it. We don't wanna think about those intersections and those relationships, because there's a feeling that even even to invoke them might somehow be perilous, uh, might somehow invite a kind of uh, um, recirculation of a metaphor that we don't like, right? But I think that one of the things that um, you so beautifully show us is that there are all these really extraordinary ways in which our writers have been thinking with the animal as a metaphor in ways that are far more complex than that. And ways that actually, it's not to say that there aren't still problems of, you know, negativity and all the things that I think stereotypically at a kind of surface level, people have always been drawn to when thinking about that comparison or that relationship. But that there's a whole lot more there to excavate. And um, you begin the book in your introduction. It's fantastic. The, um, I should just say that the, um, table of contents, I don't know, I don't think, have, have you ever seen, I've never seen another book I think that does this, but the 
the table of contents of the book is actually just a list of, of animals, right? So the horse, the rat, the cock, the mule, the dog, and the shark. And you kind of weave through these uh, readings of, that connect these animals to text, some that we are very, very familiar with, um, that are already well-established canonical texts, like uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative, um, and others, and, and this is something and I'll, I'll just talk about at the end as a little example, um, that at least to me were relatively, or and I think are, it's fair to say are relatively lesser known, and which I think you, you, know, you allow us to kind of revisit or discover in, in many cases for the first time. And so the, the introduction to the book begins uh, by considering the very opening of Douglas's narrative, uh, which is a very famous opening passage but you focus on, a, on what I, I think it's fair to say is a kind of detail that is often not really thought about or kind of lingered on, which is that um, in the, in the very, on the very first page on the opening words that Douglas uh, gives to us, he relates, uh, he's speaking of a knowledge, epistemology, knowledge of his age, and he says, I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. And you kind of freeze frame for us on that sentence and, and kind of draw that out and point, that, point out how interesting that detail is. And, and, and this, I have to say, is something that, you know, I think, I think this is one of the reasons this book is, is destined to be, in its own way, a classic because it really made me think about um, other classics like uh, Sadia Hartman's Scenes of Subjection and the ways in which I feel like now, when we, whenever I go back to the narrative, I can't possibly read the Aunt Hester scene the same way. You know, it's, it's sort of, if you've, for those who are not familiar, uh, uh, Sadia Hartman gives a really uh, uh, very profound and in some ways disturbing kind of uh, an unsettling um, um, reading of that very famous scene in the narrative. And you just, you can't come to the text in the same way again. And I feel in the same way with this, that even though this was a text that is so canonical and so well known, I just can't read Douglas the same way anymore. You know, every single time I come, to, you know, I open this book and we, you know, I know that, that I will, I know that many of us will many times again, I'm going to come to that passage on the horse and it, you know, you just, it hits different. You think about it completely differently. And so you've opened up a whole way of thinking that has been, you know, was, was lying sort of in plain sight, that, but that we hadn't really connected with. And in the chapter uh, on the rat, in which you do this, uh, I think it's fair to say, kind of tour de force reading of, again, this uh, a very famous opening in Black literature. Uh, which is the opening of Richard Wright's novel, Native Son, with a scene where uh, Bigger Thomas is wrestling uh, with a rat. And you, you show as you move through your chapter that there, you know, this is a scene that scholars and literary critics, you know, a lot of ink has been poured over this scene. And you kind of move through these different readings showing how in a lot of ways they, they kind of miss in some sense, fairly obvious things that 
if we just expand our conceptions just a little bit, seem fairly obvious. For example, oftentimes those readings have tended to kind of sort of draw a kind of equation, a kind of simple equal sign in between bigger and the rat. They're both trapped. They're both therefore animals. They're both uh, kind of condemned in this rat maze uh, 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 of their condition. But I think one of the things that you show so beautifully is that, uh, that if you look closely at the text, it's, it's actually quite clear that there's actually something of a kind of recognition that's happening in between the animal and bigger. And that there's an admiration, I would say an admiration that's evident even at the level of Richard Wright's attitude towards this relationship, which valorizes, I think, something like a certain kind of cunning, right? A certain kind of intelligence and realism about the conditions that one is in uh, such that you could almost talk about a certain kind of admiration, uh, maybe per a perverse admiration, but nonetheless a kind of admiration that Bigger has for the rat, uh, for its persistence, its dogged insistence on living no matter what uh, its conditions may be. And so these are really, you know, they, the, these are readings that completely flip uh, 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 what have been sort of highly ingrained uh, ways that we've approached these texts. And I don't want to uh, 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 drone on too much here, but I wanted to uh, just mention another one, which, which I find really moving. This one, in this case, it's actually a poem. And that's uh, 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 this beautiful reading that you do of a, of a poem that's not that well known uh, by Melvin Tolson. And it, uh, it's a poem called The Sea Turtle and the Shark. And it's uh, a wonderful poem that I think you quite rightly suggest is kind of playing on the biblical story of Jonah, and but completely revising uh, um, the metaphors in that story. And in this instance, uh, uh, essentially you have um, a sea turtle which is swallowed uh, uh, by the shark, but uh, it's quite obvious as you, as you kind of unpack it for us that both the sea turtle and the shark stand in some sense arguably for um, the experience of black people, black history, and black self-making under the conditions of the shark, which stands in a sense for, you know, this predatory state, this predatory uh, uh, capitalism, I would even argue, that swallows the sea turtle whole. These are lines from the poem, from abyss to shoal, sometimes the shark swallows the sea turtle whole. But and this is your, your reading, as you know, this is the ending of that poem. Uh, the sea turtle gnaws and gnaws and gnaws his way in a way that appalls his way to freedom beyond the vomiting dark, beyond the stomach walls of the shark. And this, I mean, you know, the fact that I think this, this you know, relatively under-examined poem that you're able to fold this, you know, into um, not just, you know, um, a story about Melvin Tolson and his poetry, and maybe uh, not just, uh, you know, a suggestion, though I think it's very much here that we need to rethink some of the sort of packaged narratives that we've had about Richard Wright. 
and not just that maybe um, there's more going on in Frederick Douglass's narrative than we sometimes think there is, but that all of these things kind of tie together, that there's a whole way in which we can think about the way Black people have fought with and through the animal as metaphor continuously, and that there's a, a whole way of thinking about the literary tradition that's being opened up here, really does this incredible uh, double move that's, that's very expansive. Because on the one hand, you're giving us a way of rethinking the literature, right? It's, it's a whole new lens for doing um, you know, what you might think of as you know, a kind of sort of traditional literary criticism. We look at the books and we're trying to think about how to interpret them. But also at the same time, there's this incredibly rich way in which you're making intervention in theory, right? And opening up, um, as I say, with many other authors and many other folks who are, I think, as I suggest you, sort of at the cutting edge, pulling together these different fields and kind of encouraging us to expand the frame at a moment when our, you know, reconceiving our relationship to nature is so essential. I mean, I think we all can feel it. We all know it on some level, but there's a serious question about, well, how do we go about, what are the resources? What are the tools that we have? Where are those tools? And even if we locate them, when we pick them up, what should we do with them? And I feel like this is a book that's helping us to kind of give really concrete examples of how we could go about doing that work. Um, so I think it's an extraordinary book in that regard. And I'll just say really, really quickly, I, I know I'm taking a lot of time, but um, one of the things I think that's the sign always of a really exciting book is that you just start um, seeing it everywhere. <laughs> and this has just been my experience. You know, every time, uh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm reading something completely different, I'm looking at some, uh, you know, a historical uh, document. I was watching a, a documentary about Mike Tyson. There's this whole passage where they were looking at him um, um, uh, uh, taking enormous care of these pigeons that he kept uh, on his rooftop in Bedst, uh, sorry, not in Bedside, in Brownsville. Um, and I thought, you know, it's just, you know, your synapses start firing because suddenly you have a framework for thinking about this that, you know, you didn't have before. And just the, just the other day, for completely, you know, different reasons, I was, I was doing some research on some, some historical questions that I'm interested in. And, you know, I was drawn to um, uh, some, some papers and some books about the Buffalo Soldiers, right? These black soldiers that are enlisted in, uh, uh, um, you know, these really terrible campaigns, right? These are campaigns that are essentially about, uh, uh, they're essentially ex extermination campaigns and, and kind of the closing down of the West uh, uh, by the US Army. But also uh, the Buffalo Soldiers will get enlisted in the kind of uh, those late 19th century Imperial Wars in the Philippines, um, uh, in the Caribbean and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it just, it just struck me <laughs> so just like this whole question of the animality there that, in, you know, this is just something that I think, you know, I mean, you know, we've all, you know, we know that term and yet we so often don't necessarily interrogate. What's, what does it mean to be talking about these black soldiers in connection with this animal and how, how did they acquire that 
name? How did they think about that relationship? How have other people understood that? So um, that this book has just been really, I think, exciting, and and I hope that um, a lot of people will read it. I'm certain that a lot of people are reading it um, in the field, but I think that even if you're not specifically interested or working in the kind of in an academic sense in Black Studies, I think this is a book you should really pick up and think about because, as I say, I really believe that we're at a critical moment in terms of rethinking our, our ecological understanding of the world. And we can tell that it is bound up in the problems of racial hierarchy, in the problems of our attitude towards domination, in our attitude, our affective and emotional lives and the way we relate to living things and how we accord them or fail to accord them dignity and respect um, and recognition. Um, and so uh, I, I think in that sense, this is a book that um, has something for everyone. And it's, um, you know, like I said, a, a groundbreaking book that's doing, you know, that's really at the cutting edge of the field. And um, we're lucky to have it. Thank you, Jesse. Simone, can you close this out? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> um, that was a really beautiful testament to, to your friendship as well as your book. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say thanks to Jesse for that. Um, I, I'm gonna, I want to actually read a little bit, a little passage from your mm. book. Um, mm -hmm. This, this section, I really, I'd love the table of contents and yeah. it really does speak to your poet sensibility um, that you just allow that litany to, to linger as um, a possible strategy for organizing thinking. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated it. And also I think words are really funny. So, <laughs> you know, so like those, those are also funny words. And, and so I, I, I just got a lot of pleasure out of, out of that. But I'm gonna start, so this is the section cock, which of course I am drawn to. And <laughs> this, um, very beginning of this chapter called Cock, which, in which you talk about flight and flightlessness and Toni Morrison's engagement with flight and flightlessness in her work. And more importantly, the thing that I, you know, maybe stupidly didn't get immediately was that this was going to be about masculinity. Like it just didn't <laughs> occur to me until I was in the chapter. And, but then your, your, your quotation of Afa Weaver uh, of weightlessness. So I'm going to like read a little bit from your thing and then I'm going to read a poem which is kind of a um, a rejoinder to this question of weightlessness or, or weight, the weight of masculinity. Anyway, so this is on your page. Um, let's see, I think it's on your page 67. You say, I'm interested in working through and against discourses that imagine little else for black men beyond the grave, and furthermore, in gathering such materials to think toward a theory of the black masculine that shatters prevailing pathological assumptions about what such lives can bear, there's my cat, or bear forth and ultimately aims to build something fresh from the shards. Now, a little further down, you're talking 
uh, more specifically about Morrison. And you say, um, I'm interested in the ways in which Toni Morrison uses animals and birds in particular to make a certain argument about how it feels to be a black man, how she deploys them in order not to critique the limiting violent ways in which black masculinity is constructed from outside, is structured from the outside, but also to describe the means through which black men and boys bear such weight, how they comport themselves under the duress of everyday life as a perceived threat. Um, and I'm gonna read from this poem, which is called Or on Being the Other Woman, mm. um, which you know thinks about um, masculinity, masculinity as a kind of entanglement with um, forms of um, violence against women and also um, and love. And um, I'm just going to start reading this section of the poem which comes towards the end. It's a long poem, about 40 pages, and this is just one section. Should I put the cat down? Cat. <laughs> 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 no man has ever not tried to steal from me. That's wrong. The man who never tried to steal from me never wanted to be with me like that. While the man I was with, who explicitly stole from me, was so crazy at the time I didn't think much of it, structurally. Or I could not think structurally at the time. In California, Prairie light and scenes from midwinter day were coming to me in a confusing way via social media. I wrote to Laura, I had a dream in which I was overcome or beset by a kind of erotic storm, encircled by lovers. That is, men of whom I would say, fucking is eternally in the nature of our bond. The transmutational properties of masculinity, the three forcefully whipping around me, having become a cosmos of presence to myself, my mesis with no share of the bearing down. Inside their fucking gyre, I transmitted a signal for help, but it could not escape because the force of the dimensions which they were, or were creating was a black hole. The real blackness of the hole was true. I woke up knowing what words to say. Say the dream, Laura. Within two or three days, I have been trying to identify the name of the pressures. No, I cannot remember what any of them had done to me. I try to remember forming an intention. Now I'm going to act as crazy as possible and threaten to go to his job and tell his mama and his best friend what kind of person he is and how he's been stealing from me all these years and telling people I'm a spoiled bitch because I have all these degrees and won't take my baby out of private priesthood. So I was acting crazy and smoking out the window of my house, screaming into the garden with the morning doves, looking at me like I was crazy. I stopped when he said a number, I guess. I can't remember much about it because I got pretty drunk afterward and woke up in the night thinking, Lord, I am not able to do this much longer. Please let this man see my name. In two or three days also, I had learned there was no name for the pressures. It was the most ordinary black womanhood, which is not nameless, has all the names of us and is nameless, and has no intention and is strategic. One of the days a young dancer came up to me and said, I don't know how to embody the musical problems. And I said, well, how does it make you feel? 
I began to be able to speak of it myself when I felt myself growing more graphically male through its practice. I listened at deafening loudness in my car. Clearly, I am trying to hurt myself. The words they say, they have a newness. I promise never to speak the words in my poems, not in defiance of interpretation, but because they are so creepily hostile and unfunny. The interior they assume in a dress so murderous, I don't see the point of repeating it. This is what words do. How does it make you feel? You are not allowed to have feelings. You are not allowed to have anything. And when you have something, somebody will try to take it from you. Don't doubt it for a second. There is no honor in patriarchy. It is a drug. Sometimes I allow my eyes to roll back in its vicious pleasure. I can feel joy if I remember I am feeling the power of myself as a vacuous thing, an unknown thing, out of which words come under pressure, begin to make new, so that the structure of the poem was falling down around me, as were the constitutive energies of what I was, such as they were visible or detectable to me. I sensed them breaking. They were already broken. This was the condition of which the poem must consist, the radiant materiality of circuitous attacks, some such as might be deflected, others helplessly slip inside what is. And that's it. Maybe we could talk. Wow. Thank you so much, Simone. And thank you, Jesse and Tango. Yeah, I, I would love to talk to you all. Um, Josiah, do, do we have questions in the Q&A? Can we improvise it? How do you want to proceed? No one is a, uh, uh, I know there's plenty of questions out oh, I know there's plenty of questions out there from the audience, but no one's posted any yet. So uh, if you all start talking, I'm sure that they'll get, they'll get, they'll start flooding in in a moment. But um, man, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing talk, God, and, and tribute to the book. But uh, please, if you all wouldn't mind conversating amongst yourself while we all eavesdrop, that would be all right. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, first I want to thank everyone, not just for the rigor, but the uh, the intimacy of what was shared here today. You all read such beautiful work across genre. And I think one that shows the intimacy of these forms in our tradition, but it also shows the kind of patience, uh, thoughtfulness, and dare I say it, love that went into your readings of this book that was a PDF on my computer for many years. Uh, and there's it's terrifying to, to release a book and um, to be able to share it with your friends, I think is one of the great joys in the world. So I wanted to thank you all uh, for that, for the way that you shared this space with me um, and with our many friends and colleagues that are gathered here. Simone, I wanted, if at all possible, to talk to you about heartbreak, because I feel like you're picking up on a, a theme that also travels through the book and in which I, I would have never said before that this was a book about heartbreak, but now I, I Think maybe it is. You're, you're making me think about Esh and about Janie uh, and about Milkman um, as these characters that are, are heartbroken. Um, and that part of what I think the figure of the animal does for them is it allows them to think about other forms of kinship and relation that might not necessarily repair that heartbreak but make it livable. So I was, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about um, what inspired for you uh, the connection between that reading of Morrison, of the chapter on Morrison, and the beautiful poem, the beautiful, painful, powerful poem uh, that you shared? Um, 
Great's a good word. I, you know, and a word actually I've been thinking a lot theoretically about because of um, an essay that's really kind of lived with me for a couple of years, which is um, Alexander Wahelius and Kathy McKittrick's essay on heartbreak, 808s and heartbreak. Um, which, Jesse, do you cite that, that that essay? I can't remember, but but it's it's been really important to me in formulating this sense that um, that there is there is a kind of um, under theorized or untheorized um, refusal to acknowledge our entanglement with certain forms of irredeemable sadness. And that, that sadness, you know, can't really, you know, there isn't really, and you know, actually, I'm in, I'm really in struggle with the question of metaphor right now in my own work. And one of the reasons I love Tongo's work so much is because I don't feel in struggle with it really. <laughs> when I'm listening to Tongo. Um, I don't feel I don't feel um, constrained by like the notion of of metaphorical working or figurative working, or like troping. I feel a different kind of freedom in the way he makes connections. But, you know, because binaries, right, one is either happy in love or not happy, like that actually isn't how love works at all. And, um, you know, and so I'm very interested in, in uh, the sustainability of certain kinds of disappointment and how we learn um, never to expect certain kinds of happiness and maybe the impossibility of ever achieving certain kinds of happiness. And so that even, so that words themselves, right, the words that we think of that are supposed to represent our happiness are, are insufficient for expressing the actual conditions that give us joy. And, you know, I don't know, I, I could talk about this for a long time, but, but the, the long and the short of it is like, um, this is why to write, like, literature, right? This is why, you, because you can experiment with different problems in expression um, that might give you like better resources for describing one's actual conditions, something like that. It's beautiful. I think, I was gonna ask you a question, Josh, and, and we're, put this to you because I, I would love to know what your thought is. There's a, there's some really, there's some really challenging philosophy that I think is happening in this book. Um, I think of this and, and I think, I mean, you know, I was trying to suggest that I think this is one of the things that makes this book so exciting and interesting is that you can read it both as, um, both as literary criticism, which it most certainly is, I mean, you yeah. definitely come away from this book thinking, wow, I have entirely new ways of reading um, works of literature. But it also is very much, as I say, can be read as a, as a book of theory, uh, a book of philosophy. And, you know, if you think even about the title itself and the subtitle, Blackness and the End of Man, um, which alludes... I would say doubly. I mean, it's it's most immediately um, an allusion to Sylvia Winter, um, and you know her argument that one of the problems that we have is this um, 
what she calls this kind of overrepresented category, right, of man as this bourgeois liberal subject that um, so much of the world has been conscripted into serving, right? Uh, so you have a very small minority of the world that gets, you know, Amazon Prime junk every day, and then 95% of the world you know, is in various states of subjection in order to make that possible, right? And then, mm. and, but, but, but we take as a model for the kind of ideal subject of rights that, you know, the state is supposed to most immediately protect and so on and so forth, that very small minority, right, that subject. And uh, so you're, you're referring on one, on one level back to Winter, and Winter herself, right, is, or I certainly think of her as challenging, revising, correcting, I think you might even say Foucault, right, um, who has that very famous uh, passage at the end of um, the order of things, right, with the, you know, where he's looking at the beach and there's this kind of uh, Robinson Crusoe moment of, you know, the footsteps in the sand. And he says, you know, man, where, where he means something similar to what, to what Winter is talking about, this, this subject of the European Enlightenment that has existed, you know, for a couple of hundred years. Um, he says, you know, this, this subject was created historically and, and may in fact pass from the scene and perhaps is passing even as I, you know, even as I look at these footsteps being washed away by the sand, right? Uh, the, this, this kind of Crusoe man who shows up everywhere and just claims dominion over things, right? Do dominion over the animals, uh, and but also obviously dominion over Friday, right? Friday shows up and he says, well, call me master, right? Um, so that Friday is like a pet, Friday is an animal. And, uh, one of the one of the things that I think you're 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 grappling with in this book is this sense that one of what's exciting about a lot of this literature is the, are some of the ways in which and I'm thinking in particular here of um, your 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 readings of you know of Hurston um, of course from their eyes we're watching God but you know of this a kind of way of that these writers, these black writers have been trying to think about a boundarylessness or a, some kind of um, continuity between the human and the animal um, without, that, without that continuity being, um, you know, frightening or it's not necessarily frightening, but, uh, you know, objectionable or, or needing to be suppressed in some ways, uh, 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 that, that there's a, a binding between the living and, you know, between the, the, the processes of life, life and death, and a continuity of all the things that are alive in the world that we can hold together and be bound to without necessarily requiring a... A, a this kind of hardened boundary of the of man with a capital M, Fu, you know Foucault's man and Sylvia Winter's man that she's trying to have us move beyond and replace. Um, I just thought you know I, I I'm, Simone I'm glad you mentioned this because you know this is a beautifully written book you know it's just something that um, 
is, is worth saying, but there's this uh, lovely passage. This is the very end of the chapter, Mule, of course, uh, in which you take up, among other things, persons, their eyes were watching God. And this is just the very end of that chapter. I just want to read this beautiful. You write, ultimately, tea cake will, con will contract rabies from a dog he encounters in the coming flood, and Janie will be forced to shoot him in order to save her own life. That the novel ends on this note, that is, a major death caused by proximity to the animal, is of critical import. From the opening of Their Eyes Were Watching God, Hurston makes it clear that there is no communion to be had with the animal without the possibility of death. There is no bond unmarred by blood. This, for Hurston, is the work of the figure of the mule as a problem for thought, signifying there on, on name Chandler, also passing, shout out, how we might collaborate across unfathomable distance and think about difference, not as an occasion for domination, but as an opportunity to sketch a dying world anew. And, and this is something I guess I've been thinking a lot about because I think, you know, so many of us, so many, it's, I don't want to say it's fashionable, but there's a kind of sense in the air of thinking about the end of the world, thinking about the end of things, thinking about apocalyptic, um, a kind of a, a, apocalyptic moment that we find ourselves in, or that it certainly feels apocalyptic. But I hear you also talking about a kind of beginning anew, right? Um, and I've always, at least in my reading of Winter, I think of her as thinking about a beginning anew, a new humanism. And so I wonder how you think about that. You also end very curiously to me, there's a wonder there that you kind of, I think, highlight, you italicize it at the very end of the book, you isolate this notion of mentation. It's a very philosophical, kind of technical term. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you, how you think about this book as philosophy, what you're trying to do here with the animal, the human, the other man it's a hard question now you know but it's no, a good question it's a good question i mean we we both i don't know i mean at princeton i think part of what i learned in the english department was that there are very specific disciplinary distinctions you know that we had to be wary of between english and philosophy but the philosophers pulled me in from the very beginning um in terms of my time there so reading Jacques Derrida as the animal that therefore i am yeah, thinking about this opening scene with him and his cat and thinking about Simone's cat, right, of course. Um, but also about County Cullen's cat, right, with who, Christopher Cat, with whom he, he co-authored these two children's books, right? I talk about it a bit in the introduction. But part of why I bring that up was, I guess, as a graduate student, 23 years old, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, what's the relationship between Derrida's cat and, and County Cullen's cat? Like, what's, what's happening there between the moment where Derrida's cat sees him naked and it brings him of course right there to the garden of eden and he has this whole moment thinking about the animal sort of returning his gaze whereas cullen is thinking about christopher as a collaborator right always in the footnotes right mm -hmm. if you read these children's books christopher's voice is this strange kind of underground and i was just taken with that and I, was, I was taken with this idea that some of the philosophical foundational texts in animal studies um, maybe did not necessarily have space for the kind of black distinctions I grew up with as it pertained to animals, especially. So my father is from Alabama and growing up, he would talk about inside dogs and outside dogs, for instance, right? The, the dog, the figure of the dog in animal studies has very little to do with the inside dog and the outside dog. It also has very little to do with DMX and with dog fighting, which was another sort of major feature 
of my childhood. And this is, again, this is animal cruelty. It's not great, but there are dogs in my block that they're, they're uh, companions, right? They're human companions who feed them gunpowder, right? The, the idea was to, to make them tough, to make them meaner. And to me, there was a very specific way that those men, right, they were largely men, thought about um, the violence that they had lived through and the violence they were willing to see uh, visited upon their companion animals. And that, to me, merited thought. Like, I really had to sit with what it was that the dogs I saw on TV, the dogs I saw in these continental philosophy texts, and the dogs on the block seem to be doing very different things. So, so I guess um, that, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm, I'm trying to make a, a real intervention um, into certain key Western philosophical texts and how they've, I think, um, helped us think about animals, but without the, the present and insight of the, the slave and the formerly enslaved um, and, and their descendants. Frankly, I think there are very specific ways that Black people have historically talked about their relationship to animals in slave narratives, um, in fiction, and in poetry. Right, um, knowing you know why the cage bird sings. This is Jared Sexton's work, right? But that doesn't mean you know the song. It doesn't mean you know the words, right? There's an opacity to the animal that I think black writers really respect and are trying to grapple with. I don't know what a mule has going on in its mind, right? You but have to word exploring it. It's exploring the inside and the outside dog, right? Inside. Right. Right, salvage the bones. But part of again, but part of the reason salvage the bones took me though is because it won the National Book Award. And I was thinking, what does it mean that this novel that Jesmyn Ward has brilliantly written about dogfighting is getting this kind of national recognition at the mm. same time that I don't see the, the interdisciplinary conversation shifting, right? That's a, dog, that's a novel about dogs bringing intense harm to each other, but it's also a book about violence and loss and the loss of mothers. And Hurricane Katrina is described as a mother. There's Ash, the, you know, the black teenage mother. There's the mother that's dead. And, and they're connected across strata in these really beautiful, complex ways that aren't clean. So I'm not thinking about it necessarily as a book of philosophy, but it's definitely informed by philosophy. Um, philosophy is an important part of, of not just my training, but how I make sense and move through the world. I've been reading um, Bernard Siegler recently, um, who is like a former bank, I don't know what it means to be a former bank robber, but he was, you know, he was a bank robber before he studied with Derrida. And, I've been thinking about that too. Like, is he a prison intellectual? What's the relationship between him and these other prison intellectuals? And, uh, and lastly, I'll say just thinking about Winter, you know, in January, 2019, I got the chance to go to her home and spend two days with her and talk to her about, about the project. And I, I had to change the intro significantly because she just got me thinking about origin stories. You know, what are the origin stories we tell ourselves about black literary studies um, and our relationship to the figure of the human? You know, and I think our, our visions of the human have always been capacious. You know, difference is not always about domination, you know, but I think it is about um, respect quite often. You know, I'm not gonna go play with a bear. I don't know what a bear has going on. A bear can really hurt me, you know, and I'm not gonna pretend anything different, uh, certainly not in the name of dominion, so. I'm sorry, are we done? <laughs> okay, we, have, we have time for one more question and um, Robert Abraham, to ask. Sorry for the interruption, Simone. Okay. Um, so Robert wanted to know, uh, um, in, in joining, uh, whoa, whoa, I just uh, it moved. Sorry about that. He's uh, saying it was such a great talk. And then your um, Joshua, in your reading of Natural Animal and Native Son, what connections might be drawn between Bigger's violence against the rat and his violence towards women more generally? Do you think that such connections can be drawn? 
Uh, said differently, I guess I'm wondering what you see as the connection between your readings of nature animals in the tradition and the right specifically with eco-feminists throughout thought more generally. Is the question clear? Okay. Yeah, there's another element of that. I'm just read. sorry, I'm trying to read the whole question so I can get at it. Yeah, I mean, how do I take that up in the book? I mean, part of, part of how I try to address it, and then Simone, I want to get to whatever you were going to ask um, as well. I'm trying to think with both sort of people who are explicitly self-identified as black feminists, like Hortense Spillers, for instance. So in, another way to read that mule chapter, for example, is, is an extended close reading of, of uh, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, right? Where I'm trying to really think about body and flesh and this, and what Nanny says about black women being the mules of the world, and then the way mules actually appear in Zora Neale Hurston's work. Right, that I think part of what she's also saying about that position of invisibilized labor that's taken for granted is that there's a kind of um, what Du Bois calls a second sight, right? That there's actually another form of second sight that's opened up for the Black women characters in that novel, and it has everything to do with proximity to the natural world, right? That part of Janie's, you know, sexual awakening um, is also, if you look, it's it's about flies and bees and flowers opening, right? It's it's about another version of the veil, that part of what happens also when you're, you're behind the veil is you have a different sense of, of atmosphere. You can see different things. Um, and, and so to, to the part of the question about Bigger, absolutely, his violence against Betty, his violence against his little sister. I mean, I talk about this in the intro too, right? That he's, he's sort of also trying to torture his little sister with the, the rat's corpse, right? And it's, it's part of the way we're meant to, to read Bigger from the very beginning and right, he's explicit about this. He's supposed to in some ways be uh, the embodiment of various terrible images um, that he imagines the reader already has as it pertains to, to Black boys um, and men in particular. And so part of what I'm trying to navigate, I guess, um, in the juxtapositions I've seen between him and the rat is just, I think, it, it misreads not just his fullness, but also the, the fullness of the, the women in his life. Um, so I, I spend some time close reading, for example, what his mother says to him, right? The, that, that scene in some ways as his mother just kind of dooming him to, to a future death, it's supposed to be his mother sees that he's, he's headed down a tough road. And I actually think there's a much more intimate uh, reading of that available, right? Which is actually that she just wants her son to sort of stop this destructive behavior. So it's, I, I don't know that it's so much me trying to uh, recuperate bigger or, or flatten the, the violence he engages in in the text, but rather to sort of fan out and see what are the, socio-political conditions that create this character and how do we read his fugitive flight um, in a fuller way. Last thing I'll say on this, I teach Sylvia Winters No Human Involved every, No Humans Involved every term for this reason. She talks about sort of the, the black male jobless poor as the blood sacrifice for black middle-class identity. Um, and so as an abolitionist academic, I'm always trying to think about what it means to keep in front of us characters that have done violence and that have done harm um, and understand what it means to read them um, with that as part of their, their fullness. Um, because I think if we can't, then there's no abolitionist future we can really imagine. Um, yeah. Simone, what, what were you about to say? I just wanna make sure. I was gonna direct a question to Tongo because I was thinking this whole yeah. time about this one thing that I wrote down in the haze that I'm always in when I listen to him. Um, I think I, this, you did say this, right? I'm lucky to be a metaphor for no one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I guess, I guess it really activated my interest in, you know, how this is striking you as, you know, insofar as, you know, there is a sense in which all metaphorical, all metaphorical statements, right, presume something. And I just want to hear you complete that sentence in a way, you know, like, does that even make sense to you? Uh, you know? Yeah, it, you know, um, what what I was kind of thinking about, and, and this and, and, and this thought was was also uh, kept uh, actually <laughs> uh, uh, conveniently kept uh, jumping in my mind as I was reading this book was the the concept that you know not not only are we um, part of a whole, uh, you know, with the groovy kind of like dime store interconnectivity of, of all things, but we're also part of future holes or mm -hmm. as dialectical relationships, um, you know, synthesize things, um, you know, from the most, uh, uh, from, from our, our, our moments of, you know, uh, everything from dying, you know, dying, terrified. You know, I, I just think about all this, just this kind of like terrifying destruction that we suffer. We don't even get clean deaths or or or, or easy deaths. We we get the most, you know, we we we, we get these terrifying deaths in which we die paralyzed with fear. Um, you know, and and, and, and all and, and all the way up to the other side of of that of this equation of of kind of this power um, that I will end that I that I end up feeling. Well, I synthesize my survival. We synthesize our survival from, and we synthesize um, our our resistance. So when I'm thinking about, I'm I'm lucky to be a, a, a metaphor for no one. What is kind of left out is uh, the 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 temporal condition of that. Hmm. So I'm a metaphor for nothing now, but I'm part of. I, I'm 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 heading towards, or I will be part of a, a, a future synthesis, or a, um, you know that 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 I'll be the I'm the I'm the past of a uh, of a free people, you hmm. know. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, I, I'm, t I'm tired, man. You know? <laughs> like I'm really tired. And I'm really tired. Of, I, I, I'm tired of all that we're suffering and I'm tired of having to reproduce myself uh, through with super damn near supernatural um, means. But at the same time, though, I am, um, I, I don't say I appreciate because that would be uh, corny. But I look at all of our origin uh, with a curiosity, seeing it as part of, you know, a future, a future whole, a future, a future consciousness that will have synthesized itself from, you know, both all of the groovy future, futurism type, you know, potentials, or also actually kind of the ancient wisdoms made future, uh, futuristic. Um, and, 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 and these, and these, uh, and these, and these nightmares. So it's, a, it's, a, in a way, it's a, it's an interesting kind of like, 
not put a, 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 like a breath, a pit stop of invincibility and then I'm kind of just like, I'm, I'm looking at myself as, as just part of, really part of a process. And therefore not even really a, a, um, a, a super singular incarnation of, of anything. You know. <laughs> the end. <laughs> well, I'm so sorry, but we have, we have time for one more question, uh, Joshua. Kwon Kim uh, was wondering, he says, I was interested in joining this panel because of the connections I see with Zakia, Iman Jackson's work on animality and post-humanism, Sylvia Winter too, and how black studies is challenging decolonial thought and literature in ways that I feel Jesse McCarthy was speaking on. The way human and anti-human concepts of anti-blackness shape the basis of racial capitalism, at least my non-black understanding of reading black feminism and Afro-pessimism and its carceral models of civil life through policing and incarceration. Do you have any specific thoughts on how this conversation engages with abolition and its pertinence black liberation, which we are seeing in political discourse right now? I feel like what Tonga just said addresses those things. Yeah. Matter of practice and thinking, first of all. Um, Yeah, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Oh, well, I wanted to say one thing on that quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think, so Ruth Wilson Gilmer says that abolition is about presence, right? That it's actually about not just tearing down carceral institutions, carceral ways of knowing and doing and being together in the world, but imagining what would replace them. And I think also thinking about what ways of being together do we already have here that are liberatory, um, and so I think the dream of a world without cages or chains necessarily includes the animals and includes the trees and includes the water and, and the dark earth beneath our feet, frankly. So part of what I do think I'm trying to outline in the book too is a kind of abolitionist capacious vision um, that our writers and thinkers have, have always had, that they've always carried with them, you know. I don't know if anybody else wants to touch on that though. I, I feel like I would, I would love to hear what Tongo and Jesse got on that. I'm very curious, I'm very interested in the possibility that actually we are in some ways ensnared by our continued dependence upon certain ways of literary critical thinking. And that, that I'm always curious in my own, you know, I didn't get, I guess, you know, I don't know what happened with my literary critical training, but it went askew somehow. And I, <laughs> I feel like what, ultimately happened was that I became skeptical of the practice of uh, liberate criticism and, and mm -hmm. that it became crucial to me to think about what it meant to write poetry as art and not as a part necessarily of, I mean, Joshua, we've actually had this conversation before about the possibility of eruption and of working outside traditional uh, coherence. And so yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't believe that any conversation about literature or practice of art is ever separate from how it's possible to think about the world as another place. It does not involve our suffering in this way. And for me, that be, it doesn't begin this way for everybody, but for me, it begins with the individual separation of words from the things that come along with them. 
you know, mm. and that's what winter, that's what I learned from winter. You know, that's what I learned from, from arts, what I learned from studying arts, what I learned from listening to other poets who are really working like Tonga, you know, and um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess that, you know, I want to insist, like, because I happen to be here in this moment, in, on, on, on that as a real practice of politics for, for me and others. Yeah. Can you say more just quickly about the separation of, um, I think you said words and the things that come along with them? Well, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about your book, right? Is that you start with a fascination with a few words, right? And, and yes, they, they relate, they have, they have images and concrete things that might be attached to them, but really they're just ether, right? Mm. You know, mule, cock, rat, shark, they actually aren't anything. And the, what makes them solid, what gives them presence, right, is their penumbras of, of, of like, and, and so in a way, like, in a way I'm more interested, you talk about the natural world, but actually I'm interested in kind of like the spatial world equally. Mm. And um, air, <laughs> and um, and what is vibrating in those spaces, and so mm. the things that come with words are all the things that are surrounding those um, those three letter words that you're working. Those those things to me don't look just like rat, you know. Yes. Yeah. It looks like, in my mind, it looks like a whole swirling mess and that's what you're unpacking in the book and that's what makes it valuable you know teaching us how how to do it because it you know it's so overwhelming and you have to begin somewhere yeah i would would just second that really quickly just to say that um like simone i agree that you know there really is no division here in between the, the work of art, the creation of the work of art, and the social, the political, the environmental, right, um, being itself. And, and, you know, like someone was saying, just, just, just attending to, forcing certain kinds of attention upon words in a certain order, in a certain time and space, in a certain way, um, changes so much. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we, we should say, because a lot of folks might not, might, I mean, the folks on this panel know, but a lot of folks um, watching may not know um, that the title of your book is a line of poetry from Lucille Clifton, right? Yeah. Being property once myself. And what follows that, right, in her poem is, I have a feeling for it. Being property wants myself, I have a feeling for it. And, you know, there's this thing where, you know, Orlando Patterson in his book on, um, on freedom, I mean, a lot of people know his book on slavery and social death, but he also wrote this, you know, massive tome on freedom. And the first line of that book, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, I'm going to mangle it and get it wrong, but, he, you know, he essentially says, you know, the first people to really have a, a, a robust conception and understanding of freedom is the slave. Right. If you want to, if we want to have a serious conversation, 
you know, in political theory or political philosophy about freedom, we shouldn't go talk to some plantation owners. We shouldn't go talk to John Locke, an investor, you know, in the Royal Africa Company. Um, we should talk to slaves. Like, it makes a lot of sense <laughs> that somebody from, who's in the position of enslavement is probably going to have a more, a deeper understanding and have to have thought more deeply about freedom than uh, the man who is busy, um, you know, trading stock options uh, uh, in the slave markets, right? So that's 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 on the on on this kind of, you know, political philosophy side. But you know, you think about Lucille Clifton, you think about the work happening in this book, and it seems to me that, you know, we're we're in this moment where we know that. All of us, the whole globe is at, a, at a, a very sensitive, very dangerous kind of place where we really need to make some profound changes in our relationship to the environment, to our ecology. Um, and, you know, animal life, plant life. I'm thinking about Lucille Clifton on trees, you know. I mean, our, our relationship to the natural world how are we going to actually, you know, a lot of people want to talk about policy changes, or what, what you know, carbon tax, this and the other, but how is any of that kind of stuff going to happen if we can't change um, how we really feel, yeah. right? And I'm, and I'm getting at the way in which Clifton's line is being property once myself, I have a feeling for it. And that part of the work of poetry is to actually help us to become reacquainted with ourselves, right? And reacquainted with our, our, our being in the world and our feelings um, and expanding out uh, what's, what's possible there. And, you know, what I would say is, is, you know, to the question about, you know, abolition and all of these things is that, well, if, you know, none of that might be possible. None of that is very likely to be possible if we can't to some extent, you know, change who we are as people and, and the only sort of way we know, I think, uh, uh, that, that sort of does that is art, right? Art, we know, works. We know that art changes the way people thinks, think about things. We know that art has a kind of truth quality that, you know, reading an article in Vox does not. doesn't matter what your politics are. Here, you know, it, it's just that's not what you go there for a certain kind of thing. You go to a work of art for a different kind of truth. And... You know, I think one of the things that your book is pointing us to and saying is, look, if we really want to do this work, if we're serious about the work of abolition, if we're serious about the work of ecology, if we're serious about um, saving each other and saving the planet, um, who should we turn to? And just as Orlando Patterson says, if you want to think about freedom, you're really going to need to go talk to the slaves. I think part of what your book is saying, if you want to think about these entangled relationships well we have a body of literature right we have thinkers and artists and poets who have been doing this all along and so here they are and here's a methodology here's a way into that work um, that i'm making available to you it's beautiful um, <laughs> i i'll just say real real quick that um i, I think uh you know, <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. I, I, I I'm so tired of white ruling, the white ruling class uh, dominion. 
and I'm and I'm so committed uh, to the dismantling of that. Uh, what is exciting about um, really about Joshua's mind as it dialogues with everything <laughs> throughout the throughout the book is that you know it's it's actually it's it's a um, it's a it's a consciousness for freedom fighters to emulate um, to look for um, you know to to look for 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 analysis uh, to to look for comrades everywhere in this reality and all of these um, these social orders and I think that you know it, it's it's so, so when when I um, when when I was um, you know when I when I was talking about you know how dialectics play out in our position in it, I actually feel we are in the antithesis position. That you know these 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 people that, that there were people of various of uh, 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 conditions that came before us and their approaches to conditions that come before us. Um, we are we 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 are talking we are talking back to that. From an interesting little point of um, uh, of of, uh, of um, autonomy or, or autonomous outlook, it's fine. I, I think it, all bets is off. We can reinvent any wheel we we is necessary. <laughs> reinvent <laughs> any wheel necessary. I like that. <laughs> but but uh, 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 what 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 but 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 what's uh, to me what what why this is such a um, uh, 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 why I feel such a tenderness for this this task um, is that you know, like like the like the like I Quay was Tyler, you know the, the 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 beautiful ones are not yet uh, born, right. and so as you know, our consciousness and how we treat it and how we grow it and how we make it more healthy and actually uh, make it more more sane is that you know is that can, can be we have an opportunity to be that transition into a into a uh, into a consciousness that 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 there's nothing invented uh, that can keep it um, repressed so in a way it's just like man you know how, how joshua was getting down on the page is a real just like to me it's like uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a future self kind of peeking out, um, and just seeing the potentials of really the potentials of uh, of the potentials of the mind. So I think that you know, and that's we're always what our artists what we stumble onto sometimes just in our quest to keep it psychedelic, you know, is that. We 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 actually stumble on to 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 a kind of an invincibility, um, if just an invincibility of analysis that can that can that can that that can play out in any freedom fight. And it, you know, in conclusion, you know, one of my favorite fun facts is that um, Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka taught at San Francisco State University the year before they had. The, that that historic uh, strike, right? It basically gave birth to Black Studies, you know, in the in the United States. And I don't think that was a coincidence. <laughs> you know, the the end. <laughs>
I feel like such a heathen for even interrupting this. Uh, you know, like Megan says in the comments, I can listen to you four for hours, but uh, man, this has been a beautiful event and a beautiful conversation. And Simone, you've gotten several compliments on your cat in the comments as well. I'd like you to know that. <laughs> God, uh, Joshua, you said that this was the big first uh, of, the, uh, of the book uh, celebrations. When are the next ones coming up? Can you tell, tell us real quickly where that? Yeah, so the next one will be at the end of the month. I'll be in a conversation with Imani Perry. Uh, as my dissertation advisor and just one of the, the greatest to ever do it. Um, so you can follow me online or you don't even have to follow me. You can just find me via Google. But I'm at Sir Josh Bennett on uh, Twitter and I'll be posting updates over the next two months um, before the baby gets here. And after that, I'm going to be radio silent for a while. But yeah, more coming up, more soon. that is Joshua, seriously on the book and, and on the familia and everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, Jesse, Simone, Tongo, it was such an amazing dialogue and the way you all mixed everything together, so profound, so very profound. Um, also, I wanted to thank the audience, uh, the enraptured audience, as I, could, as I could see by the comments. Uh, it was a wonderful way to spend some time together. And um, please, if you uh, keep visiting City Lights is a, a um, reading series here on, on in the Zoom Mundo. Um, on uh, August 18th, we have uh, Anarcho Blackness with Marquis Bay in conversation with Andrew Coutrone. And August 26th, we have the great Ishmael Reed in conversation with Tennessee Reed as well. So please come join us for that. And um, if you haven't already purchased this amazing book, the link is in the uh, comment there. Help keep City Lights alive as a cultural center. Help keep literature alive as a cultural center. <laughs> to learn more about upcoming events, please visit us at our website at www.citylights.com. And uh, I've been Josiah Luis Alderete, your host for tonight. I want to say again, gracias, Joshua, so much, so Thank much, y'all. Take you. care of each other. Thank y'all. Yes, yes. Thanks, Josh. Thank y'all so much. Take care. And we got to do this again, maybe offline, but we got to <laughs> reconnect. Absolutely. I much love everybody. Blessings. Peace. Buenas noches, y'all.